Hello, welcome to Repast, a food law and policy podcast from the Resnick Center for Food Law and Policy at UCLA Law. I'm Michael Roberts, the Executive Director of the Resnick Center. And I'm Diana Winters, the Assistant Director of the Center. The Resnick Center performs cutting edge legal research and scholarship in food law and policy to improve health and quality of life for humans and the planet. Each month, we'll bring you an interview with thought leaders transforming food law and policy. Hello, welcome to Repast. I'm Diana Winters, Deputy Director of the Resnick Center, and today Michael Roberts, the Executive Director of the Center, and I are going to speak with Professor Andrea Freeman, Professor of Law at the University of Hawaii, William S. Richardson School of Law. Professor Freeman, whom both Michael and I have known for years, and I'm happy to say is moving to LA over the summer to begin a new adventure as a professor at Southwestern Law, writes and researches at the intersection of critical race theory and food policy, health, and consumer credit. A lot of her work explores her theory of food oppression, which examines how facially neutral food-related law and policy influenced by corporate interests disproportionately harm marginalized communities. She's the author of Skimmed, Breastfeeding, Race, and Injustice, which came out from Stanford University Press in 2019, and Brewing Their Crops on the Ground, which is coming out from Metropolitan next year, 2024. She's also the recipient of the 2020-2021 Fulbright King's College London U.S. Scholar Award to study food inequality in the U.K., And today we're going to talk about her new article, Food Oppression in a Pandemic, which was published late last year in the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. And we'll have links to all of these publications in our show notes. We're so happy to have you, Andrea. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here talking to you today. So thanks for the invitation. Great. And hello to you too, Michael. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And and I have fond recollections of visiting with Andrea when we first started the center almost well, 10 years ago. She was one of our earliest collaborators and to visit us here at UCLA. So it's wonderful to have you back and you don't look any different than you did 10 years ago. Same to you. <laughs> and I look forward to more future collaborations. Thank Absolutely. You. We're excited that you'll be closer to us geographically. So, Andrea, in this article, you look at the multiple ways in which racism infuses food policy and how this contributed to higher COVID deaths in communities of color. Can you describe for our audience the racial disparities in COVID cases and deaths? Yeah, unfortunately, in the sort of key markers of hospitalizations and, uh, you know, acute care intake and deaths. Indigenous, Black, and Latinx populations had higher rates across the board. Okay. And so you talk about food oppression in this article. And um, as I mentioned in the intro, that's a theory that you pioneered. Can you talk about food oppression and can you talk about how it manifested during the pandemic? Yes, of course. So it started as a way for the U.S. government to use food as a tool of subordination throughout colonization, enslavement, Mexican immigration to the U.S. It's always been a key part of trying to control 
racialized populations. And that shifted in the 1930s to bring in corporate interests. And now those interests, the idea that food policy should profit corporations instead of improve people's health has become the dominant framework of food oppression. When you say it was a tool of subordination and control, was it intentional? Was it used intentionally? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to refer to that title of my forthcoming book, Ruin Their Crops on the Ground, that is something that President Washington said to give explicit directions on how to drive Indigenous people off their land. So starvation was one of the key ways that settlers were able to take over land and then to use the rations that were necessary because they destroyed Indigenous food sources to manipulate Indigenous populations, to either agree to treaties that weren't fair or to remove their children to Indian boarding schools or basically any goals that the government was trying to accomplish. So that was very intentional. And then when you think about enslavement, food was a tool to control people who were enslaved. It was a way to stop Uh, The law was used to try to stop enslaved people from being able to support themselves through growing food, selling food. This kind of a, a thread throughout when there was emancipation and the Freedmen's Bureau that was supposed to help freed people find their way. One of their main roles was to provide food rations. But then they realized that actually freedom was not that good for the economy. So they took away those rations to coerce people who had been freed to go back to plantations and basically be re-enslaved. So these are just some examples of the ways that food played a key role in enslavement, in subordination, colonization, and all that. Thank you. I, I just wanted to to mention uh, it's a very interesting start to our conversation here that one of my students this semester is writing a paper on how food has been used as a tool of war and and so it, it I, I think that there's a really a really big history here of food being used in impressive ways like you've said that can go from very local communities to you know global conflict. Uh, for example, in World War II, you know, there's no, there's evidence now that that Germany was contemplating even using starvation as a much bigger tool than it had. But more people died during World War II from hunger and malnutrition than they did through actual fighting. Yeah, exactly. That it's it's an interesting part of our history because when you think about emancipation and we think, oh, what a wonderful thing. Right. But then so many people who had been enslaved died because they had no food anymore. Right. When they lived on plantations, they there were, you know, it was inadequate. It was terrible food. People died of malnutrition then, too. But suddenly there was a political change without the food infrastructure to support it. And and people just died in such high numbers from hunger, malnutrition. So 
how did you see this and how did you write about this manifest in our times during the pandemic or during the first years of the pandemic? So this food oppression has evolved over the years. And as I briefly mentioned there, when corporate interests started to become more influential because of farm subsidies and corporate capture of food policy, then we saw the development of government nutrition programs that became dominated by a desire to support agricultural industries. And that was more important than trying to support people's health. And because of this history and systemic racism in society, the people who disproportionately use these programs are Black Latinx, there's the the food program specifically for Indian reservations. So that goes to indigenous people. And these programs have steadily fed people a diet of unhealthy foods that have led to the modern food problems, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and other conditions like that. And so when COVID hit, we quickly learned that having these conditions were sort of underlying what they call comorbidities. So they would increase the the likelihood of having a more severe COVID or dying from it. And so that racial disproportionate number of people dying and having the worst cases was related to this history of being fed on diets of unhealthy foods And the reason for that being to support the food and agricultural industries. You talked some about the attention to personal food choice that was discussed in during the pandemic and how how did that relate to food oppression? Yeah. So I I start out the, the essay talking about this advice that was given out you know, from a Black doctor to a Black community saying, if you want to, you know, survive COVID, basically, you should go vegan, right? <laughs> Which, of course, is not an easy thing to do and not a very realistic solution. Because, first of all, people had a lot of trouble getting access to healthy food to sustain a vegan diet in the first place. But also, that's not the solution, Right. One person's change in diet is not going to protect them and their community from COVID. So there was this idea that if only people would do the right thing, they would would conquer COVID. And that deflects responsibility from the institutional issues that create the problems in the first place. It takes the responsibility off the government onto the individual to say, just eat better and and you'll be fine. You know, you'll be safe from this pandemic. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. There's also the aspect of essential workers and food workers who, while some of us were bunkering down in our homes, others couldn't do that. And so how is this aspect related to food and the pandemic and these disparate deaths and illnesses. Yeah, racism really infused the attitudes towards essential workers, especially as time went on, right? So in the beginning, not only doctors and nurses, but food workers of all kinds, like people who worked in 
grocery stores and people who are producing food were considered essential workers and kind of universally applauded for going out there when everybody else was inside and able to protect themselves. But as time went on, and there was a recognition of some of the disproportionality of who was doing these jobs, then the protections got really uh, taken back, right? And and almost eliminated. But one industry right from the beginning got no protection, and that was the meat processing industry. And that is a really tragic story of how despite rampant cases because of the way that meat processing happens and the closeness of people in these plants, the cases spread and the government and the, you know, the companies running these factories were very, they're just absolutely indifferent to the fates of their workers. It is no coincidence that the meat workers are very Workers of color are 61% of the the industry, but 87% of the people who got COVID in the factories. And that spread to their families and communities. And we just saw a push to increase meat production instead of decrease, right? Uh, Orders put out by the administration to say, you cannot close down any factories where there are a lot of cases, and even to speed up production to make transmission worse. We saw people, managers in these factories taking bets on which of their employees would come down with COVID. It was all very heartless. And it was all covered over by lies about, we have a shortage in protein, right? We're all going to I don't know what's going to happen if we can't eat our burgers or our steaks, right? This is this is the collapse of civilization. And so there was an idea that these workers had to sacrifice themselves to keep America eating meat, when in fact, there wasn't a shortage at all. We ha- had the same or higher exports of meat, and we had distribution problems like we did in a lot of industries but not a problem in producing enough. That's so interesting because I remember the, it it was just a layer of anxiety about shortages of meat layered onto these other anxieties around the pandemic that was coming through the media and through the the grocery stores and nobody really knew what was going on. But that's that's really interesting. And sad. I mean, as a vegan myself, I can say you can survive without meat. I think that was a fascinating time. And I I remember realizing it at the moment, and even more so now, when many friends, including many sort of forward-thinking people, people that are normally pretty progressive and open and sensitive to the plight of others, were driven by this fear of not having enough meat and and stocking up their freezers full of meat and and even though I would say, you know, we can all use a little less meat, and it's not really about the meat, it's about the workers. But it fell on deaf ears often enough where it really stunned me, actually. And I still remember the headline stories in the media. You know, it was usually an executive from a, a, a large meat company prophesying a food shortage or a meat shortage or a protein shortage. 
But we didn't respond very well as a society to that. I, I don't think that's not a very bright spot for us. I've had a couple students actually write on this um, last summer. Undergraduate students in a study abroad trip to Italy took this issue on. And I just thought it was they, they, they did a nice job. But it really is a is a moment that needs to be looked examined more and more, I think, because we did not respond well. And I really think that. It, we have to think about the underlying racism of this, yeah, yeah. that response, because I think that even when people acknowledged how cruel and inhumane and, and indifferent to humanity that response was, a lot of people were still not talking about the racism underneath it. And I really don't think in any industry that was white dominated, we would have seen this. That's just what we see over and over again. But it's it's almost invisible. Those are lives that are not valued in American society and so much easier to sacrifice for whatever it is we want. If it's meat or, I don't know, our nails done or our hair done or whatever it is. Yeah, I agree. Meat and toilet paper, the two things that strike the fear of God into people when we... <laughs> Both <laughs> things we know we actually can do without if we need to. Exactly. Wait, so, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a global perspective. Speaking of this topic, uh, it does, you know, we, we did a lot of talking during the pandemic as well about how this is a time to really reflect on how we can address certain issues. Everything from family relationships to education to the way the school is taught, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a time of reflection. And it, it seems to me that the pandemic did afford us an opportunity to address and ameliorate this food oppression, as you've described. I mean, could it have been, in, from your viewpoint, did we miss an opportunity? And if, if so, what would what could we have done? Yeah, I absolutely think it's, a, it's one of those sad missed opportunities, because in the middle was that kind of optimism, like things are so terrible. but it's shining a light on how bad they are and how systemic problems have brought us to this point. This is a moment that we can seize and change, but that absolutely did not happen, right? If anything, we're doubling down and things are getting worse. So for example, we had all these benefits that were increased, right? Uh, things were more open. Work requirements for SNAP, right? Food food benefits were suspended. There was more food given out. Students at schools were able to get additional food. They were able to get food over the summer. All kinds of programs that really help people were put in place, and now they're being dismantled. So that's just showing how we learned nothing, right? We could have thought about how it's not just food quantity, right? We started seeing these emergency food provisions, which was essential, but the focus still was on the agricultural industry supporting the food industries that needed to, you know, offload food that suddenly people couldn't access, they couldn't access in the form that it was distributed in, they, they couldn't afford to buy. And that was what was sent to people instead of realizing, oh, we're having these underlying high risk factors. We need to improve people's diets, not just on an individual level, but on a structural level. 
let us change our programs. Let us send the produce to people. Let us send the lentils and, and the rice and, you know, whatever the healthy things are to people. That that didn't come into the equation at all. And now that things are getting worse, we're actually setting people up to be in an even worse place if we see something like this again. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Let's get a little bit more granular here for just a, a minute or two. Um, in the article, you identify several concrete steps that can reduce the inequities perpetuated by the food system. Can you discuss some of these steps and just outline those for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we start with the subsidies that drive what goes into our nutrition programs. And that they have stayed the same over about a century now, even though our nutritional needs have changed, or at least our understanding of our, our nutritional needs have changed. So, you know, the biggest thing is we don't need to put all our money behind milk and meat and corn and soy and things that go into surpluses that then become unhealthy products, right? Let's take the money and direct it toward things that we now understand are healthy, the fruits, the vegetables, the lentils, the beans, right? All of these uh, kind of healthy foods. And then we have all kinds of other structures in place that support what is already in place. So the dietary guidelines. Marion Nessel has done great work over the years showing how those guidelines, which are the baseline for all these programs and say what kids have to eat at school and, and what is a proper meal, are really guided by industry interests, politics, and not nutrition. That's something that needs to change. We have a wonderful or potentially wonderful program in place for women, um, infants, and children that over half of the kids in the U.S. Are, are using. But that program has some interesting historical roots. It was based on and sold on the idea that, oh, poor women, Black women, Latina women, they don't know how to feed their kids. So we have to fix them and make this program so that they eat properly. And built into the program are all these kind of gatekeeping functions where if you want to access WIC, as it's called, you need to go to a doctor who has to diagnose you with a nutritional problem just to be able to get the food that you need for yourself and your kids. And that is a vestige of the racist roots of the program. We need to get rid of that. Uh, we we need to, when we're providing food, to make the food healthy, to make it accessible to everybody who needs it. Because right now we have food programs, but they're very undersubscribed because there's so many barriers to even just getting it. That food insecurity is such a huge problem. It's It's worse now because so many people lost their jobs. We haven't recovered. But then we're seeing this attitude, I think, that we're seeing around COVID in general, which is it's over. The pandemic's over. We've moved on. Everything can go back to how it was. It's not over. And the way things were wasn't very good. Speaking of a lot of things you just mentioned, in March, the pandemic emergency allotments of SNAP benefits ended. As you said, these um, a lot of these allotments are ending and millions of people lost this emergency food relief that they'd received during the pandemic. And this is, they're also 
additional bureaucratic hurdles being put or that that were removed are being reinstituted. And so and this is as as you said, you know, people lost their jobs, COVID's still around, and we've had record inflation, which has raised food prices a ton. How will this affect the communities that you discussed as being disparately impacted by COVID in general? Yeah, um, as with everything, it will be worse for those communities than for white communities, because that's the way the system is structured right now. Well, who who takes place in these programs, who participates disproportionately black and brown people who have been, you know, affected by unemployment, by by illness, not being able to protect themselves are now going to have fewer resources. And I expect those, uh, you know, the rates that are already disproportionate to become even more so. Do you see any glimmers of hope? Um, I'm thinking about for just news I was hearing today and yesterday about efforts to increase work requirements for SNAP benefits um, in our government. I mean, obviously we have a very divided government right now, where can we look? Any ideas? Yeah, I I don't think those will go through, but they are fighting pretty hard to get them, which is definitely a step in the wrong direction. Uh, I, we've seen, I think it, we think about the schools, which is such an important site of health. These are our kids, the next generations, right? And so, you know, fairly recently, there's been proposed stricter health standards for the schools, which which is cause for hope. But there's also been an accompanying pushback, very extreme from the industry. So I don't know where we're going to settle, but I think probably we'll move the dial up a little bit on that. So that may be an area of slight improvement. I think there's a lot of activism, which makes me happy. So as you mentioned, um, I was recently, even though the Fulbright was a few years ago because of the pandemic, I had to delay it. So I was just going to recently in London and seeing some of the activism there that comes from students. There's a very powerful student organization called Bite Back. And they send out weekly emails that, uh, no, they lobby, they they raise awareness, they do a lot of important work, and they testify about their own experiences in schools and how it affects their lives. And when I see that kind of young people, student activists, that is what gives me the most hope. Now, I think at some point, we're, we're going to sit back and they're going to take over and they're going to fix it all. I feel the same way. I, I've always feel energized after being in class with younger the younger generation. And um, it, it does give me hope as well. So congratulations on a wonderful article and, and some reflective, interesting, and really sad, but important thinking you're, you've been doing uh, on these issues. So what's next for you? 
Well, it's this book project that I've kind of talked about a little, uh, but it does a really deep dive into history, which is fun for me because my undergrad degree is in history. And uh, I've always kind of wanted to get more into that uh, study with law. It's also a trade book. So it's going to have a lot of stories and hopefully appeal to a really wide audience to bring issues of law and food and race to to a lot more people. And I've discovered some really interesting history in there too, like these uh, programs, Americanization programs for for Mexican immigrants, particularly in California, that people really, really believe that food is the key to erasing culture, right? This is something we also saw in the really sad history of um, the federal Indian boarding schools, right? There's a very deep belief that food is identity. Food and race can never be, you know, I don't know, torn asunder. So I'm looking at this history really deeply. And then I'm looking at the present and, you know, the things I love to do. I'm looking at pop culture. I'm looking at TV shows and movies and a lot of incredible ads that I've been coming across. I like to do, you know, as you know, I think work on milk and whiteness. And there have just been some incredible campaigns coming out. For example, White Gold is a rock singer who represent milk and just amazing things that I can't wait to share with people. (laughs) So that's my next big project and hopefully it'll be coming to you next year. I can't wait to read it. Very exciting. Very interesting. So as we always do on this, on these podcast series, we want to ask you if you would uh, care to dispense any advice you have for students or lawyers or people who want to, working together to make the food system more just, equitable, and sustainable? I think it's just really important for people not to forget about the racial justice aspect of food justice and food issues. To me, it's like when you think about criminal law, the criminal legal system, you can never think about that without thinking about race. And to me, food is the same way. But A lot of times it's the silent elephant in the room not being discussed, even though it's a part of, I think, every food policy issue that we have. So I think for people who really want to improve the equity in the food system, never to forget to always be asking the questions, how does racism play a part in this? You know, what what is the the unspoken oppression that's happening here or that's part of this that we should bring to the conversation. You've uh, made that very clear to us today. So you've done your job. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. And I will keep all of that in mind as I go forward teaching too. I think it's really important. We've tried to do a good job with that this semester in our a food law seminar at UCLA Law, but I think there's always room to do more. So thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much to our audience for listening. As I said at the beginning, we'll put links to Professor Freeman's work and other work she mentioned today in our show notes. 
listen to us next month for another Food Law and Policy Conversation. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for the opportunity. I always love talking to you too. Bye-bye.